Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, the co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. The great state of Maine, Tyler, one of our favorite places on the American Shoreline. We're going to go there today. And uh, we're going to be welcoming back to the American Shoreline Podcast one of the favorite guests that we've ever had on, who's been on the show a couple of times, going back about three years ago, uh, Dr. Joseph Kunkel. Uh, he is the Emeritus Professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and he is a research professor at the University of New England Biddeford, and he is, I would say, Tyler, the world's leading expert on lobster shell disease and has been working on uh, understanding what's happening in the lobster fishery off the main coast for more than a decade. And uh, we're going to check in with Joseph Kunkel, uh, Joe, our good friend Joe. Uh, on this episode, Tyler, and get an update on what's happening up in Maine. Uh, maybe touch on the whales issue that's going on up there as well. It's going to be a really interesting show, and it's always great to have Joe on the podcast. Tyler, uh, his episode is one of the top 10 all time on the American Trolling Podcast Network. He's a popular guy, and we're really looking forward to talking to him. We love Joe. He's one of our favorite guests of all time, as you say. Uh, and you know, the subject matter is, I think, one of the most interesting areas to kind of nerd out on. You know, you might ask yourself the question, why should I care about lobster shell disease? And the thing is, like, the lobster fishery is the largest, most valuable fishery in the United States. It's all in Maine. It has a Maine, the state of Maine, which has congressional power, that has a delegation, that has two senator, senators. I mean, there is a lot of force that this industry can put on U.S. ocean and coastal policy. And what's happening in the Gulf of Maine, where Joe studies, is, Peter, I think, really interesting. Because my understanding is that it is the fastest warming water body on the American shoreline. Yeah, I, that's what we've heard. And so the, we have this dynamic change happening right before our eyes. And it's, of course, impacting the wildlife. It's impacting the ecosystems in the water. Um, it's also impacting the social side of things, the humans on the shore. And we're interested in all of that. But uh, today we really get to nerd on, out on what's going on in the water, Peter. Yeah, really looking forward to talking to Joe uh, and having him back on the show. It's going to be a great discussion, Tyler. Looking forward to it, too. But first, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. Support for the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today comes from Geodynamics, an NV5 company. Geodynamics' team of specialists provide accurate surveys of complex coastal environments around the world using the latest technology in marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing. With customized vessels and sensor configurations, Geodynamics delivers meticulous data products to answer their clients' toughest questions. Visit nv5geospatial.com or geodynamicsgroup.com to learn more about Geodynamics and their solutions that improve lives. And from the Coastal Zone Foundation. The Certified Coastal Practitioner Program from the Coastal Zone Foundation offers courses covering 11 different subject areas, including coastal engineering, ecology, geology, project management, and more. 
The CCP program emphasizes a multidisciplinary approach to coastal zone management, setting you apart from the competition and demonstrating your commitment to best practices and a code of ethics in your field. With modules available online or as live short courses, the CCP program is accessible to coastal professionals at all stages of their careers. Learn more at coastalzonefoundation.org. And don't forget, subscribe to the CNT Daily Blast newsletter for the latest news and updates from around the American shoreline. Want to support our work? Learn more about sponsorship packages at coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. Well, Joe, welcome back to the American Shoreline podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you back on. Well, I'm pleasant. it's a pleasant uh, day here in Maine, and I'm glad to be on too. Joining us from Scarborough, Maine, Dr. Joseph Kunkel. Uh, Joe, I would like to start off with uh, get, getting an update from you just on how things are looking on the Maine coast. Uh, you're a, not only a scientist, a marine scientist, but also a resident, longtime resident of Maine. Um, it's been three years since we've had you back on the show, and I was curious, how are things looking to you as a, as a marine scientist? What can you tell us about uh the status of things along the main shoreline and the very broadest perspective? Well, for people who have lived here for quite a long time, I've been here now for uh, 11 years permanently uh, after being in Amherst, Massachusetts for 42 years. But um, as a 11 year resident here um, and talking to the locals here who uh, Fish used to fish as kids in the Scarborough River, and um, today go out fishing. Things have changed over their lifetime, and I'd say even over my lifetime. Uh, the uh, uh, and particularly the the lobsters locally uh, have become more scarce because they're all moving up to the top of the Gulf of Maine. Uh, and so it's harder for pe for lobstermen down here uh, to catch lobsters because they have to spend more gas per unit lobster uh, to get them onto the shore. And so it becomes cheaper to buy the cheaper lobsters from up coast, or people here would say down east, uh, which is where the major... Uh, bulk of lobsters uh, uh, are being caught. Uh, and uh, it's sad. Uh, I went to a, uh, a local uh, lobster place that's like five minutes from my house and eating out on a, uh, uh, the deck of, uh, uh, they actually have a pier and you can have nice uh, seats out on the pier. And I uh, had a conversation with someone on the table near next to me. And um, on standing up, they were, when we were leaving, uh, their lobster was just being delivered. And I saw that they were delivering a, about a two pound lobster that had rather bad shell disease. And it was the first time I had ever seen, that was about two years ago. So that was the first time I saw that 
people were starting to accept the whole concept of shell disease lobster um, and being even accepting eating it. For the most part, they will not even bring shell disease lobsters into the pier to be sold. Um, and if they do, very often the uh, processor will process have it processed into meat to be sold as meat rather than uh, as a, a nice lobster. Because as a nice lobster, uh, if you boil it, it turns that cherry red. And uh, if it has shell disease, all the places where it has shell disease lesions turn like a rusty fender of a car. And it looks horrible <laughs> compared to the cherry red. Uh, and uh, other things are changing. For instance, uh, we're seeing more uh, uh, blue crab uh, on the shoreline. You know, uh, shells will um, float up on the shoreline and occasionally uh, uh, you'll find one in the shallows. Uh, so uh, blue crab were never found here. You know, they're Chesapeake Bay item uh, more so. And uh, we used to catch them down in Long Island, New York. Uh, we would uh, catch blue crabs, but never above Cape Cod. And uh, now we're, being, we're seeing them here. So there are all sorts of changes. We've also lost our iconic uh, Gulf of Maine shrimp, which is... Uh, the northern, so-called northern shrimp, now they're up in the Gulf, uh, in the Gulf of St. Lawrence uh, and above. Uh, so we've lost, due to global warming, um, this species, which is moving north. And uh, occasionally, you know, they'll do a experimental fishery. Local fishermen will be given the right to try to catch some northern shrimp and actually they'll catch some but not enough to be uh, marketable other than to a lo one local store we have one local store here in scarborough that occasionally will have uh, gulf of maine shrimp and they they were an iconic shrimp that people just loved to uh, uh to buy and cook uh was was a great was a great uh, main type thing. I mean, you wouldn't get it anywhere else as fresh as as the Gulf of Maine shrimp that you got here. So, Joe, what is driving all of this uh, movement of these different species north? Uh, we I mentioned in the intro that the Gulf of Maine region is changing dramatically, but what's driving that? Well, the global, typical global warming is driving it, and along with it, uh, so-called ocean acidification. Uh, some people like to separate those two, uh, ocean acidification and global warming. But um, global warming is, uh, you know, I, I've looked at the data. It's a little bit exaggerated in terms of how fast we're warming. Uh, there was a, you know, they started using data 
that was already on a real downswing and and their calculation of the rate of warming is based on that uh early that uh downswing and uh, so then uh all data earlier than that was considered uh you know pre-warming and uh uh the post-warming data is clearly has a slope that uh, is uh, terrifying uh, because it's going to, you know, we'll be boiling uh, in a few decades. And um, so I think it's a, exaggerated a bit, but it has understandable components we have five major rivers coming into the Gulf of Maine, and all of those are bringing the heat from the interior and the sun beating down and whatever into the Gulf of Maine. So global warming is in the Gulf of Maine is being accentuated by these uh, input of these rivers. And we truly do have uh, probably more global warming here uh, but not as much as as that the slope that is often uh, depicted uh, states. But it, it's truly affecting the Gulf of Maine. It's driving uh, the, the uh, lobsters further north, and uh, it's allowing the uh, the blue crab to come into the Gulf of Maine and survive. Uh, and driving out the um, uh, Gulf of Maine shrimp. So you talked about whether the uh, the assessment of of the rate of warming in the Gulf of Maine is is uh, accurate or not. What we do know is that the uh, the lobster fishery in the Scarborough area uh, is declined. Uh, the blue crab, as you say, are present. The the Gulf of Maine shrimp are declining. They, these species don't read reports and uh, aren't particularly interested in the data. Uh, these creatures are responding to changing conditions. Uh, so temperature, you mentioned, is one factor. The other one is acidification, ocean acidification. Uh, can you help our audience understand uh, how ocean acidification uh, affects distribution of shellfish and, in particular, lobster? Well, Carbon dioxide from uh, using uh, carbon fuels is uh, creating uh, higher CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere. The majority of that CO2 is rapidly dissolving in the ocean. And uh, so that's the ocean in general. Uh, and in in particular, it's uh, it affects the very top layer of the ocean uh, most, uh, and uh, that uh, also particularly affects the uh, coastal uh, area of the United States that. Uh, is relatively shallow. Shallow, it, you know, we we have a shelf around the entire coast. So, um, uh, whereas in the open ocean, 
where there's thousands of meters of ocean deep, that uh, that CO2 will um, somewhat dissipate and diffuse down. Uh, it had, doesn't have far to diffuse down in the coastal shelf. And so the coastal shelf is more affected by that uh, increase in CO2. You'd think, oh, increasing CO2, that means you form carbonic acid. Uh, and uh, yes, if you form carbonic acid, just like the uh, your uh, soda pop uh, is um, acidic because of CO2. And um, the lobster, all these uh, centuries have been uh, dealing with this and uh, by having calcium carbonate in their, uh, in their outer part of their cuticle. That cal calcium carbonate um, dissolves and you say, oh, you're, you're adding more CO2. No, you're adding carbonate. When the carbonate, when calcium carbonate dissolves in the ocean, the carbonate takes a proton from uh, water and leaves a hydroxyl. So it's actually destroying some acidity. As and and it can do that very close to its shell. So there's uh, what we call an unstirred layer right at the boundary of the lobster shell that is been made more alkaline. And the beauty in that is that uh, bacteria cannot function in that high alkaline layer. Uh, their motility um, is... is they have a flagellum on them, the bacteria, and the flagellum is um, is run by protons. So if you reduce the amount of protons by um, by this uh, calcium carbonate, wait, hold on a second, hold on a second. Are you telling me that the flagellum is powered by protons in its environment? Yes, and usually. Uh Wow. Usually the environment is, um, uh, they, they produce the protons, um, usually themselves. They have a metabolism and they secrete protons, bacteria wow. in general. You know, if you have, um, you know, just when they're making cheese, they add some bacteria to it that, produce acid and um, and and that's the natural thing for bacteria to do is to secrete acid well um, that acid is used by them so they have protons of course uh, acid means an excess of protons those protons are drive a pump it's uh, a proton pump and that proton pump is right in the base of the flagellum, and it's, uh, it's what they call the Wankel engine, the Wankel engine of of, uh, of the flagellum is, uh, uh, you know, the Wankel engine was a rotary engine, if you remember from back when that, uh, who, you know, I gotta say, I didn't know that, the Wankel. 
the Wankel engine was a rotary engine that was driven not by pistons, but by continual explosions against veins in the um, engine drive shaft. Uh, and uh, and actually, you know, we think, oh, we discovered the Wankel engine. And uh, no, we didn't discover it. The bacteria discovered it just <laughs> millions and millions and billions of years ago. It was discovered wow. by bacteria. If you don't have protons, the flagellum won't turn. If you And the flagellum does, doesn't turn, then the bacteria can't get down to the surface of the lobster cuticle. And so uh, by, by creating a basic environment, that is uh, the uh, more acidic, uh, you're basically um, uh, defeating the uh, the alkaliniz the alkalinization of the cuticle, which is their defense. So you're overpowering their defense of the cuticle, and as a result, the bacteria can get down to the surface of the lobster shell and start a lesion. I'll tell you what that is freaking fascinating right there, <laughs> Peter. Did you know that? <laughs> did shit? not. But this is the micro you know, the microbiology uh, level of lobster shell disease and how acidification drives or makes lobsters more susceptible to this disease. It's very, very finely tuned environment. It is. I mean, just the, to think that that alkanization shield, you know, evolved to be there to protect them against the, you know, it's like a defense, very, very keen. Go after the flagellum. You know, they need that flagellum to get to penetrate. I uh, Evolution is just beautiful. I got to say, Joe, that's fascinating. Well, that's what got me into the whole issue. Uh, I was dragged kicking and screaming into studying it. I, I wanted to study reproduction in the lobster, uh, their use of yolk protein uh, to produce eggs. And um, so I had a grant to study that, and um, all of a sudden the shell disease started popping up, and and uh, so uh, the government asked me, "Well, can't you change your interest <laughs> into shell disease?" And they said, and I said, "No, I I can't. Why should I do that?" And they said, "Well, just look at it a little while." And so I looked at it, and. Uh, after a while, I said, well, there was one thing that I was really interested in, and that was the cuticle, the, the exoskeleton of the lobster, because uh, I started out studying insects uh, that way, uh, their cuticle. And no one had been studying it, uh, particularly uh, people, when they studied it, they'd, they'd uh, uh, put it in acid, an acid solution to get rid of all the calcium carbonate because they couldn't cut sections of the cuticle through calcium carbonate. It just broke their uh, knives, their microtome blades. And uh, as a result, 
no one had studied the mineral of the lobster cuticle in any detail. And so when I started studying it, I was fascinated and um, spent a lot of time just understanding that structure. Uh, and until I could develop a theory of how uh, shell disease was actually uh, interacting. What's been the greatest kind of surprise in studying the shell chemistry? Well, the greatest surprise that I had was that um, it uh, the shell actually has appetite in it. Um, people, this is A-P-P-A, uh, no, A-P-A-T-I-T-E, huh. appetite, rather than um, the uh, gustatory appetite. Uh, it it is a mineral that is uh, is uh, like our bone. Our uh, vertebrate bones are made of uh, carbonate appetite, and uh, it was never uh, appetite had not been found in crustaceans like the lobster, um, except some many years ago. People found that. In the very hardest part of the of the lobster, uh, their claws, their their mouth parts that uh, had to be functional very soon after they molted, uh, those parts had some hardening that was determined to be appetite. Well, I found that appetite had a more general function in the entire carapace uh, the covering of the of the lobster and uh, that was fascinating uh, and it's only the big clawed lobsters uh, there are uh, three well, four major species of uh, clawed big clawed lobsters the the um, spiny lobsters down in Florida they don't have large claws you know you don't you don't eat their claw meat for the most part. Uh, the big clawed lobsters include this American lobster, the European lobster, and then there's a Norway lobster uh, that uh, is a favorite. Uh, they call it the Norway lobster, but it's found all the way down to France. And uh, people eat it as their, their luxurious lobster is the Norway lobster. But uh, all of those have appetite in their general cuticle, and uh, whereas the others uh, much less so. Um, however, there is there is some, and there are details about it that uh, are mainly interesting to me. But uh, uh, I found I, I found appetite also in the slipper lobster. Uh, the canals of their, uh, they have little glands in their cuticle in there that secrete substances through their cuticle. And those canals are lined with appetite. And, uh, but that's uh, the main part of. Uh, that, that got yeah. you fired up right, right there. Yeah, uh, that's, I, I get that. That's interesting. 
very technical, but that's where kind of where you're at, Joe. You're you're deep by this point. You're deep in there, and we appreciate it. <laughs> Joe, you mentioned that locally in Scarborough area on the main coast that there's been a decline in the fishery that uh, uh, for the lobstermen. Um, how would you how do you, how are the local lobstermen in your area uh, reacting to the decline in, of of the fishery, and how do they explain it to themselves or to uh, to the community as to what's happened? What do they think is happening? to reduce the number of lobsters available? Well, for the most part, they don't want to talk about it. Okay. Locally, um, lobster costs more. Uh, they're catching fewer lobster, but uh, there's plenty of lobster there to buy uh, if you go down. Uh, it's just uh, the, the volume of lobster uh, that is sold throughout the country is being reduced because the uh, in actuality um, in the last 10 years there was a huge growth in the lobster fishery and there was lobster being sent all over the country uh, we have a lobster uh, supplier here who uh, will guarantee lobster to be sent to you within within 48 hours. You will get your live lobster within 48 hours anywhere in the United States. And um, and that uh, that uh, ability to send lobster developed in the last 10 years because actually the lobster supply increased tremendously when we got rid of the codfish, <laughs> uh, another which prey uh, on lobsters, a prey, which play, on, prey on lobsters, lobsters, right? Yes, and uh, also uh, 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 spiny uh, the spiny dogfish also uh, prey on lobsters, and that population is down. So, um, however, now the Shell disease is has leveled off the amount of lobsters, and in the past three or four years, the lobster catch is is declining. So, the lobstermen here in Maine, in general, were a very prosperous group, uh, and uh, many of them are still able to be prosperous. Uh, however, again. Um, we lost our sale of lobster to China because of the um, uh, taxes placed on Chinese goods. Tariffs. That This tariffs. is President Trump's tariff policy during his tenure, uh, which resulted in retaliation against American exports to China. Yes. And as a result... Um, uh, we no longer have a great shipment to China, and that has moved actually to Canada. So the Canadians have taken up. Uh, now there are um, flights directly from Canada to Beijing, uh, bringing them the Canadian American lobster. 
So the, the, the question, Joe, I'm trying to get to is, you know, you're describing this region. Overall, we know that the fishery uh, is still quite valuable. There's been some recent declines to under 200 million pounds harvested uh, in 2022 is the number from the state of Maine right now. Those uh, catches had exceeded 300 million pounds annually as recently as 2015 and 2016. Uh, so we're starting to see this drop. Uh, there's, that's still a lot of lobster, uh, but there's these regional impacts. And what you've described is a couple of factors in, in the decline, being acidification and, uh, and, and lobster shell disease. Uh, do the fishermen attribute, and I guess the question I'm asking, do, do the fishermen attribute the decline of the regional uh, harvest of lobsters in your part of the state to climate change? Is that an accepted understanding in the fishery? Yes. Um, shell disease is uh, now being thought of in a different way. Uh which I think is uh, whistling in the dark, but okay. How is that different? But yes, global global warming is making uh, all of our marine species move north. I mean, global warming was a part of moving the cod out of. Uh, I mean, that's the iconic fish of Massachusetts. I mean, the state house has this beautiful. Uh, uh, codfish wooden uh, statue of the codfish uh, over its legislature and uh, um, so the the codfish moved north the uh, you know there's plenty of codfish you can buy cod but it's from Iceland uh, you know it's uh, you can also buy some um, Pacific, North Pacific is a cod species that people call codfish uh, from the North Pacific. And uh, the the lobster is, uh, is the iconic species that, um, you know, really makes Maine what it is uh, in many respects. Everybody comes to Maine and they want, you know... We have all these visitors coming to Maine. I mean, we eat plenty of lobster here in Scarborough, but you know, someone comes and visits. All of a sudden, they want to have lobster, and um, I don't blame them uh, if it's their one week. And they can get here. We can get um, uh, what we call our soft shell lobster. Everybody here loves to eat soft shell lobster because you don't have to have nutcrackers or anything like that. It's uh, it's so much more enjoyable. Um, uh, it's uh, and it doesn't have all of this uh, white stuff coming out of it that people complain about. That oh, what's that white goo coming out of the lobster when I cook it? Well, that's that's coagulated blood. That is delicious it's, to me. It's delicious. I was going to ask you. I I bet you go in for that. I you like I love that stuff, it. Huh? I love it. It's it's yeah. my other specialty anyway. Is uh, uh, serum proteins of of insects and serum proteins of the lobster. That's, uh, uh, it's the, that protein is being built up during their life cycle. So they molt 
at the time that they molt, they hardly have any of that uh, of that serum protein in their blood, but they start producing it as soon as they've molted, and it accumulates to very high proportions when you have what are called a the the very hard lobster, the hard shell lobsters. Um, and at that point, they have uh, a maximum of meat as well. So a soft lobster is one that has recently molted and doesn't hasn't accumulated much of that blood. It's also, you can take it apart with your hands. You don't have to use a hammer and, and uh, uh, pliers and whatever to crack uh, the shell. Yeah. You know, I do want to just jump in, though, and and kind of weigh in, I guess, on this idea of the lobster being synonymous with the main coast, which, of course, it is in the way that, like, Disneyland is synonymous with, you know, Orlando or Southern California, Los Angeles. It's like there has been a tremendous amount of lobsters are delicious. I want to say I love them. I love lobster rolls. But there's been just a tremendous amount of marketing and um, work done to make lobsters that way. And, um, you know, I just remember, Peter, we did shows uh, on the, like, maritime history of New England. And, you know, the, the, the New England coastline and, you know, those old main villages were fishing villages before they were lobstering villages. And before even that, there was like a huge timber industry. And the, the identity of, of this, these places has changed over time um, with the economics. And what I think is so fascinating, Joe, about your work, and you know, goes back to this why, Peter, we've been kind of watching this, tracking this for years, is that as the lobsters move, what's going to be the next thing? What's going to be the next thing in the identity game. What's the pivot? Any ideas, Joe? Well, we'll start uh, buying our (laughs) lobster from Canada. (laughs) And bringing it down Uh, and calling it Maine lobster? I mean, like, what's, I mean, because to me, the main, the main coastline and the ecosystem, even like, even with the changes you're describing is still so productive. it's, it strikes me that there could be a shift in the focus, uh, perhaps. I mean, is it possible that the that crabbing becomes a thing or that there are other fisheries that kind of that that could be pivoted into? Well, it can't be uh, uh, Gulf of Maine shrimp anymore, but certainly the blue. It would have to be a more southerly something fishery, like the blue crab. Yes. And uh, also there's. I have a colleague up in northern Maine who's actually developing uh, recipes for green crab. Green crab, uh, Carcinus moenus, is an invasive species from Europe. And um, he has developed all sorts of recipes. But I have to tell you, it's, it's sort of like pumpkin pie. You have to add so many spices and so, uh, you know, you, you do your lobster, you know, your, your green crab boil. And then, um, it's like, the the 
pumpkin pie. You have to add spices and sugar and all sorts of stuff to make it edible. Uh, and we love our pumpkin pie, right? But if you ate the the pumpkin uh, flesh, uh, it wouldn't be the same thing. Yeah, you have doctored up. <laughs> There's people here. People here love lobster uh, without even without butter. I my old joke used to be that okay, they they used to feed uh, lobster to. Um, seven days a week to um, prisoners. Uh, and uh, that was because uh, it wasn't such a great uh, item uh, way back then. Uh, and uh, I said, well, the only reason that uh, they didn't like it seven days a week was they didn't, they didn't serve it with butter. <laughs> I've met uh, Mainers who love their lobster without butter. They don't use butter on their lobster. They just love it the way it is. So I just had to make that point because uh, my, my, my butter joke doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work anymore for me because, because of those. You gotta, you gotta get some new material. Yes. <laughs> Joe, if a, a young graduate student came to you and said, you know, I'd really like to, to study under your program and, and I'm really interested in, in investing my career in the lobster fishery in Maine, uh, would they be making a good career choice? Uh, and I guess what I'm getting to is over the next 25 years, um, can you speculate at all on what you think the nature of the lobster fishery will be in Maine 25 years from now? Would that graduate student have a lot to, to work with or what do you think is going to happen? Well, if he were at the uh, university of Maine in Orono and it has a, uh, a Marine uh, campus, which is on the coast, uh, I would say they'd they'd tell you come right in because we're studying uh, a new lobster and uh, we're no longer thinking of uh, epizootic shell disease. Uh, we're talking about an enzootic shell disease. Enzootic um, means that. We've reached a level, and we can we can uh, sort of drift along with that level of shell disease, and it's never going to become lethal, as it did south of Cape Cod. So that's the current question. Uh, people are going to be studying lobsters for the next twenty five years at least, I think, with the hopes that uh, we've got an enzootic, we, it's no longer epidemic the way we think in terms of human. We talk about uh, uh, human diseases as either epidemic, which we had with uh, COVID, or uh, endemic. So we have, uh, uh, COVID is now, sort of becoming endemic. We'll probably be 
experiencing COVID for the next whatever centuries, and uh, each year we'll be getting our vaccinations, and it's no longer epidemic. We're just dealing with a endemic population of uh, COVID spreaders. Well, that's the way they're arguing it. I, I'm you know, I'm sort of waiting for the shoot to drop, and uh, the same thing that happened down south of Cape Cod, where uh, whole areas got now eighty percent shell disease. Now they're dealing; they're saying that they're dealing with about two percent, one and a half to two percent shell uh, epizootic shell disease, or then. Let's just call it shell disease. And you're saying that that's the way it is now with lobster shell disease. Throughout the entire population. That is, if you round up all the lobsters, they're about, uh, and and classify whether they had shell disease or not, about one and a half to 2% will have it. Well, I've been out on the, uh, uh, on the Bigelow, surveying with the National Marine Fisheries, and we come up with hot spots where there's 20, 30%, 40% of the individuals have shell disease. And uh, however, the numbers are not that great because, you know, you bring up, you bring up um, uh, the trawl net and uh, there's 20 lobsters in it besides other fish, all sorts of other fish. So you have 20 lobsters in there. Uh, if half of them have shell disease, that's 50%. <laughs> but the numbers aren't great enough to come the to a conclusion. The sample size, you mean. It could have been the sample size, yeah. The sample size is too small. And so part of what you know I had planned to do was try to apply artificial intelligence to it and prop, try to get the, maybe some of the local lobstermen interested in counting the number of shell disease lobsters. So typically they go out and if something has severe shell disease, they throw it back in. They don't bring it back to the dock. Uh, so if it has mild shell disease, they'll bring it back to the dock and the processors will uh, process it for meat rather than, uh, than for the uh, table, for the fresh lobster, uh, boiled lobster uh, uh, crowd. Do you, have any, do you have any idea what would have caused a hot, those hot spots that you kind of experience when you were taking samples? No. <laughs> uh, and that's just the point. The point is, uh, and that's one of the reasons we've collected this data, and it was really uh, destroyed by COVID also. The, the whole process, uh, the whole process of going out and, and doing these surveys uh, was cut short. I mean, they've they abbreviated all the sampling and whatever. And so we don't have the coverage that we had before. Uh, for two years, there were we didn't have coverage. And so I had started collecting that data in 2018 and was looking for the 
the continuities of these hotspots. Uh, and there are some, there is some continuity that I can see, but statistically, it's hard to prove. And so until you can uh, uh, statistically prove it, uh, you know, you're, you're waving your hands and telling people, oh, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. And, uh, and people can ignore it. So let me see if I'm following. So we, we, we have this initially an epi- episodic uh, shell disease, an outbreak, essentially, uh, like an epidemic. Uh, but it's now become endemic south of Cape Cod. There's no, as I understand it, very little. Uh, of fun- Cape Cod, it destroyed the population. Yeah, that's what I'm suggesting. Is that the population is so low that uh, they don't even commercially collect them down there. They it, local local restaurants may have an agreement with someone to go out and catch lobsters and bring them in, but that's not a that's not an industry really. So what I'm getting to is is as shell disease becomes endemic to the main the Gulf of Maine region, um, I guess what you're suggesting is uh, the conditions that affected uh, and ultimately racked the lobster fishery south of Cape Cod could become uh, what happens in the Gulf of Maine, that this disease is so significant uh, that it really can eliminate commercially viable fisheries if it's not contended with. Is that, am I following that? Is that where you're, you're, is that what you're thinking about? Yes. And, uh, you, you've hit on a, a nub. The, the, their reproductive success is going to decline because in the lobsters that we find that have shell disease, uh, the majority of them are females and large females and that uh the significance of that is that there's some always been some ideas about you know where do our young lobsters come from and most people say it's from the giant females who produce so many eggs and um all of these Almost all the giant females that have eggs are caught in the trawl have and caught in the trawl have shell disease that is about to kill them. And it will kill them before the eggs hatch. So the lobster carries the eggs on her abdomen, under her abdomen, until they hatch. And it's essential in the life cycle of the of the lobster. I mean, there's no other way to get a baby lobster but that the female carries it for an extended period, for nine months uh, beyond what a normal molting cycle is. So they they delay their molting cycle in order to carry these eggs, uh, and the males. If they get shell disease, very often they will molt before the shell disease penetrates the cuticle and kills them. But the female who is carrying eggs 
delays its molting. And as a result, those lesions that are developing in its cuticle have a longer time, have nine more months to develop. And when it breaks through the, the, uh, into the bloodstream of the, of the lobster, they're dead. In fact, we grossly, probably grossly underestimate the number of females with shell disease because most of, a lot of them are dead already. Hmm. And, you know, they've been eaten by fish. Yeah. And as a result, uh, we're seeing the tip of the iceberg when we actually count the number of shell-diseased lobsters. As I said, the majority of them are females carrying eggs. Yeah, and that's a particularly insidious truth about this, that it it goes after the the productive females there just because they have they can't molt right they they have to carry their eggs and by delaying that molt uh it almost guarantees i I, it sounds like what you're saying is it almost guarantees that the uh what do you call it that 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 hot spot on the shell is going to penetrate all the way through and then it's it's game over it's game over at that point it sounds like Yes. Is it, is it always game over? Is there any chance? <laughs> um, I've been able to recognize uh, lobsters that have had shell disease and survived. That is, if they molt, if they molt um, without that shell disease penetrating through uh, to, the, to their bloodstream, then the new cuticle uh, doesn't have shell disease, but it it has a scarring that I can recognize. So it becomes very subtle to be able to recognize. Oh, this was a, a area of where this particular lobster had shell disease the last molting cycle, and now in the new molting cycle, it looks uh, almost normal except there's a region that, um, you know, I can characterize, uh, see, not quantitatively, but qualitatively as uh, uh, a place that had shell disease in the previous molt. Joe, uh, if I might, uh, these days when uh, we're following along with the main lobster fishery on Coastal News Today, uh, so much of the policy and political energy is directed toward the uh, interface between the lobster fishery and the fate of the North Atlantic right whale. That seems to be the center of gravity in the discussion about the main lobster fishery. Um, what you're describing sounds incredibly important uh, in terms of the fate uh, of this particular fishery, the lobster shell disease impact, as you said, driven by ocean acidification and carbon uh, and discharge of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and carbonic acid in the water and how it affects the you know the microbiology of these cells. So, I, my question is: Is there the kind of energy? and policy being directed toward this aspect of the fishery, um, is it sufficient given the concern that you're describing? I mean, 
is there an all hands on deck effort by the state of Maine, the Maine Lobster Men's Association, and research institutions in Maine to focus on lobster shell disease? Because it seems like this ought to be something that's incredibly important. Um, is there enough being done to respond to this problem? From my perspective, it uh, you know there are lots of people working on it still, and uh, uh, measuring it uh, locally uh, in the inshore. And as I said, we've been disrupted on studying it um, in the offshore uh, offshore uh, Gulf of Maine. And uh, uh, the George's Bank, because uh, of the COVID interruption of the uh, surveying, and also there's a general, there's a general change in surveying that is occurring. Uh, the government would like to get out of. Uh, these bottom surveys that it's been doing for 30, 40, 50 years, they would like to have gliders gliding through the water and making measurements. And um, so National Marine Fisheries is in a, uh, a sort of a state of evolution toward um, a more gentle way of uh, surveying the ocean. And uh, epizootic shell disease is just one little item. You know, they're, you know they're, they've got projects on all sorts of things that uh, uh, to estimate the uh, white hake population, the cod population, the, um, uh, the oyster population, uh, actually, deep sea scallops is one of the is sort of second to lobsters as being one of the main the uh, money making businesses in uh, in uh, the United States, uh, and a lot of that is done just offshore of Maine, and so all of these projects involve. Uh, you know, how do we analyze the bottom and analyze uh, what we see on these glider uh, that have uh, taking video and they're taking measurements, they're taking salinity, they're taking temperature, they're taking CO, uh, carbon dioxide uh, level. Uh, and um, I think the, you know, the American lobster is getting lost in all that. It's getting lost because um, it's, to a large extent, it's like a private industry. You know, it's the, the fishermen uh, are seen as uh, they have been quite prosperous, and the price of lobster has gone up and down, and uh, the lobstermen uh, have uh, uh, extra boats that they race and have, you know, they have a good life, and. Uh, uh, and I don't think that uh, shell disease is taking enough of a bite yet 
for them to, to pay attention. Well, Joe, I, I know that looking at your research work and uh, that collecting the lobster itself, not there's all kinds of way to survey fishery health now. There's even new technology that uses uh, DNA analysis to um, to uh, identify sort of the, how much of a particular organism is a, is is present in a particular area. These all these the whiz bang new things that don't involve actually collecting the animal. But lobster shell disease analysis that I've looked at on on your lab site uh, is absolutely essential that you have the lobster in your hand and can examine the shell up close. So as these as as nymphs and and other survey um, efforts decline, um, it does seem like there's a real risk that this problem is going to be overlooked. Is it sounds like? Well, I you know I have a uh, a nascent project uh, using artificial intelligence that would use cameras on the boats of lobstermen to take pictures of the lobsters as they are caught and either, you know, thrown in the keeper or thrown overboard. But we'd have a picture of each lobster. And, uh, you know, there's there are ways in artificial intelligence to recognize uh, uh, with a relatively low error rate you know, differences, uh, first of all, between different cars. You know, so you can have automatic driving cars that will automatically make a decision as, oh, is that someone on a bike or is that some, is that a Volvo or is that a VW or is that, you know, is it something I have to worry about in the front? Well, we would have cameras that would uh, be able to do the same with lobsters and be able to say, oh, this lobster has shell disease. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether they keep it or throw it overboard, or that one dotum that would be in the analysis. So um, so we've done some of the initial work on it. It's a sort of difficult problem because if you've seen lobsters before they're cooked, they have a mottled uh, surface. And um, in order to recognize a lesion, you have to recognize it sort of in a forest of different colors and spots and whatever. And um, uh, however, I think that could be done and a camera could be put on uh, a whole set of lobstermen's and a cheap camera, you know, camera, a camera that, so that's part of the design is to develop a, a cheap system that could bring in data, and then the data would be analyzed by uh, higher-powered computers, and we would decide what fraction of the population in that locale. So it would come in with the latitude and longitude of where it was was found. And so we'd be able to develop the data of whether there really are hotspots with more, more data than possible with the uh, nymph surveys that are... As I said, it's just not enough data. Okay. So the question is, yeah, it sounds like a great idea, and it is a visual inspection. I've looked a lot at, at the work that you've done. Uh, the question is whether the lobstermen would allow you to essentially assess their catches. As you say, whether they're keeping it or throwing away is important from a data standpoint, from 
you know, trying to understand the shell disease problem. Um, do you, I mean, you've said that they don't really want to talk about it. So my question is, is there a chance that the commercial fishing industry would join forces with the research community to really get a handle on this? Do you expect them to be receptive to this idea? Potentially, yes, because while they don't want it to be talked about um, on the business side, on, on the commercial distribution side, you know, once you have the lobster on the deck, there's a whole bunch of of uh, uh, processors and businessmen who don't like the idea of their of lobster having a disease. So, but lobstermen, I think there's a substantial number of lobstermen who care about the lobster itself. So it would be actually getting together sort of the fishermen lobstermen. I had the pleasure of uh, attending the NOAA SBIR phase two demo day. That's a, that's a government name right there. Um, and I, one of the cool pieces of technology that was presented was a tracking system. So, you know, across the seafood industry, the wild caught seafood industry, there's a growing focus on tracking seafood throughout the supply chain so that, you know, the seafood you get at the counter is what they say it is and they can verify that. And so what's cool about what you're talking about, Joe, and I got to say, it's just so neat that you're like, you know, you're pushing the frontier of technology here, but it, it gets into like treating each individual creature as an individual. And I think that that's the way our wild caught fisheries across the board. I mean, that's the way I'd like to see it go in my lifetime. And uh, so I, I like, to be honest with you, I like the idea that every caught lobster is like... <laughs> you know, photographed and it's documented. I think that's useful information across the board, not just for shell disease. Uh, yes. I, you know, I just got one of the ZX Nikon cameras that, <laughs> and uh, I am dealing with the whole concept of how much data you get with uh, 42 megapixels of data per picture. And uh, the thing is we have the storage capacity. You know, it, it it's not like the old days of of uh, uh, <laughs> sixty four floppy drives. We have the storage capacity, Joe. We can do it, yes. and we have the cloud. You can just shoot that thing well, right on up into the cloud, and you could be sitting in your basement absolutely. laboratory, looking at real time pictures from a lobster boat. Yes, I don't think that is necessary. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta like. You gotta it. like it, though. Your wife wouldn't like it. You'd quit feeding yeah. the cats. You'd be. What are you doing down there? You'd yeah. be, I'm looking at these lobsters. I'm, I'm, I'm deep in my work, babe. Gee, you've got to the quick. <laughs> you don't want to. I know. Could you imagine Tyler real time photos of every lobster being caught off the main coast? That's a lot of them. There's 200 again. million a year. Yeah, no, she'd never talk. That's to just again. it. With, with AI, I wouldn't have to do that. I'd have a, a robot doing that. Yeah. I see, right? Yeah, but okay. you have to train your AI, and that's a, an important thing. And your 
expertise, your expert eye, I think would be essential in that, at least initially. But I mean, I love this idea and it is so in line with Peter, the changes that we're seeing around ocean exploration using machine vision, AI, robots. You know, Joe mentioned the gliders in the Gulf of Maine. Um, this is the direction we're going. Yeah. It really is. And Joe, go ahead. What do you think? This is the direction we're going. We need better data to assess this problem. Uh, see, we certainly have to. And uh, uh, whether we, I mean, we have to, but will we? <laughs> That's the problem. And, uh, you know, I'm, eight, I'm 81 years old now. I need, I need some younger people <laughs> to come and, uh, you know, and uh, again, University of, of Maine, Orono, uh, they're sort of convinced that, that, that shell disease is going endemic. So, uh, but uh, you've stimulated me enough to maybe try again to talk with some of them about the possibility of they someone there taking over this uh, project. Well, all you young marine biologists out there who are looking for a great graduate uh, program to jump into, this really is a critical issue. As Tyler said, this is the most lucrative fishery in America, uh, the most valuable. Uh, and there's a real issue going on here that's tied to climate change. <clears throat> that is really not getting the research focus it warrants, I don't believe. So, Joe, we, we always love checking in with you and, uh, and learning more about this subject. Uh, it's a real honor for us to, to have you back on the show. And uh, final thoughts, Joe? Yes. Um, well, the difficulties of AI are substantial. And just, I just want to give one anecdote of, of what they are. Uh, we went to a processor's uh, uh, facility and uh, looking to see whether we could uh, get data for training our AI. And uh, uh, we ran up against uh, experts. There are experts there who can process lobsters, you know, with 95, 98% uh, efficiency. And... Um, they weren't even seeing shell disease in any substantial form. They were processing them to get rid of the ones that had uh, were culls. That is, they they didn't have you know they lost a limb or they had a some sort of a um, not a shell disease lesion, but just some you know another crab, another lobster had grabbed it and created a ugly spot or whatever. So um, shell disease uh, is on a different level than most processors yet um, are able to consider. So um, I, ju I just say that there's a lot of academic work as well as work cooperating with the fishermen that needs to be done before we can actually solve this problem. And hopefully we can solve it before they all move to Canada anyway. 
Absolutely. You know, this is the hard work of marine scientists all around the American shoreline, the people who, and, and it literally is true that you have a lab in your basement now and work very hard to understand these complicated issues on the American shoreline. Uh, Tyler, these are the scientists that, that we need to pay attention to and listen to and support the research because it's, uh, this is where it gets done. This is down, uh, down in the bowels of the of the science world and this is where the understanding of the real world really happens Tyler it is and and it's just always a joy to talk to Joe because he lets his you know nerdy inquisitive (laughs) yeah just you know he lets it he just sends it and Joe I just got to say I your your curiosity for the subject is infectious and I mean our audience obviously loves loves it too and I think that it's a it's a model of what uh, scientific inquiry can kind of do. It, it it can be this way. It can be really interesting, and the 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 research is important. It will help us understand climate change in this you know in the Gulf of Maine. The social side that Peter, I know you and I really like to follow, is also fascinating. I am interested to see how. Main pivots, and I know it will, as it has in, t- in, you know, time and time again. But this issue just strikes right at the heart of it. And Joe, you're a great ambassador for honestly a subject that's extremely <laughs> granular and uh, nuanced. But that's what it's all about. I mean, the, the interconnectivity between this like very specific type of lobster shell disease and the cuticle and all the way to how this is going to impact a whole region of the American shoreline and the American economy. Ladies and gentlemen, it is the great Dr. Joseph Kunkel. He is the Emeritus Professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and a Research Professor at the University of New England Biddeford, and I think the world's leading expert on lobster shell disease. Joe, what a pleasure having you back on the show. We really appreciate your insights. Is it sad?